This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me Dr. Nari Nafin to tell us all about her fascinating book, Criminal Law and the Man Problem, published by Bloomsbury in 2020. This is a really important book that makes the point that should be obvious, but the book does a really good job of explaining why it isn't, uh, that men have dominated the basic concepts, the the history, the kind of everything really, of criminal law for centuries. And yet that seems to be something that we don't talk about, that we don't um, acknowledge, that we don't investigate what legacies that leaves us with and how all these things have developed, um, which to my mind is a pretty important thing for us to look at. So Nari, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to share your expertise with us. Thank you, Miranda. It's a real pleasure. Before we get into all of the fascinating discussions, investigations, really, of your book. Would you mind introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this? Sure. Um, I'm an emerita professor of law at the University of Adelaide, which is in South Australia. And I've had a long-term legal interest in the way that gender bias affects the production of knowledge. That is how we know what we think we know and how objective is our understanding. When I was studying law in the 1970s, so I have had a, my interest is a long one, I was brought up short by some of the open misogyny in the textbooks. I was appalled by what was said about women. And of course I was a woman, but the textbook did not seem to be written for me. My criminal law textbook spoke of the unreliability of women as witnesses and complainants, especially when they complained of rape. So it was pretty obvious that the book was written from a certain male perspective, that women were treated with distrust, and it wasn't thinking of female students in the classroom. And for its understanding of women's unreliability, it went back to Lord Hale. Now, Lord Hale was a judge and treatise writer of the 17th century. And I should say perhaps that the recent case of America, which um, had such 
effects on abortion law also turned to Hale. Now, Hale is an old figure and perhaps to put him in perspective, he believed in witchcraft and he's sentenced to death to convicted witches. I went on to do a doctorate in criminology on the main theories of crime in which I, in which I said that um, the main theories of crime worked for men but not for women. And then I moved on from criminology into legal philosophy and eventually I came to see the need for the same sort of analysis of criminal law, that it had a male point of view and it needed explaining. I can only imagine what it would have been like to sit and read those textbooks, even just the excerpts of them included in the book kind of got my blood boiling. Um, so I'm not surprised really that it prompted so much sort of investigation on your part to figure out what was happening. Um, and before we get into kind of what you figured out and the arguments you're making, obviously I think we want to establish a little bit of the problem that the book is looking at, which you term as the double man problem. Could you take us through what this is, please? Yes, I'll have a go at this. As I said, this is a book about the discipline of criminal law and how it defines and understands criminal offences and crime. Now, the most characteristic thing about crime is its overwhelming maleness. Most violent criminals are men. Maleness is almost the overwhelming characteristic also of the people who have made that law and explained it its norms and its priorities. So you've got men really occupying all roles. They're the regulators and the regulated, the subjects and the objects of criminal law. And yet men as men are still highly talked about as the ruling personnel. And this is the elephant in the room. They're, they're everywhere, but nowhere. And I call this a double problem. Because firstly, there's the problem that men populate every position, really, as the powerful and as the regulated. This is a tremendous problem because criminal law says it's neutral as to all subjects. The second problem is that the occupation of all these positions has been so thorough that women have disappeared. It's very hard to see the male orientation of criminal law when there are so many men and so few women. So men begin to look like the normal case of the human being, and women dis disappear from view. So in essence, criminal law is about men and their behavior, but it is treated as general law, and this is false. That's an incredibly clear description of what the problem is that um, in a lot of ways, I think, makes it demonstrates how big an issue it is, um, but also in some sense, it's like, oh goodness, well, what do you, what do you do about such a thing? Um, and I'm sure we'll get into some of those pieces, but I want to stay on this idea of kind of the elephant in the room that's not discussed as much, um, because you describe in the book that this problem in some ways has, quote, a curious mix of attention and inattention um, demonstrated in various instances throughout the history you examine, where now we sort of don't see it, right? That, that men are written out, but sometimes we have or haven't. And can you kind of take us through some of the times that the elephant has been seen? <laughs> yes, well, I think the elephant's coming in and out of view. Uh, a, a central law case I use to illustrate this problem uh, is 
DPP and Morgan, DPP versus Morgan, which was a, an English case in the 1970s. Morgan was the man who orchestrated the serial rape of his wife. He was a non-commissioned officer in the RAF, and he was wandering around the streets of Wolverhampton. I think they were looking for prostitutes um, and were not successful. And he invited his three young colleagues home to he effectively to have serial sex with his wife. He said that she will feign resistance, but she will really want it. She's just like that. So they did go home and it was a very violent and serial rape. And Morgan was the um, final rapist. Now, this case became very interesting in criminal law because the court, the House of Laws eventually said that if those three young men actually thought they had her consent, no matter how unreasonable, they could not be guilty of rape. It was their subjective understanding that mattered, even if it was grossly unreasonable. Now, they weren't believed as it happened, fortunately, but the court then, that case caused a controversy because of its commitment to subjective beliefs and an unreasonable belief in consent, and some feminists called it a rapist charter. So there was a, a lot of ensuing interest in Morgan's case to discuss whether it was always important to have that subjective belief. What got left out, sort of the elephant that disappeared, was that Morgan himself was not cha charged as a principal offender with rape because he was the husband. In fact, it was re referred to him going off having the sexual intercourse. In fact, I just checked the Wikipedia entry, and they still talk about it that way, that he had sexual intercourse. Now, she was held down. It was a very, very brutal serial rape. But the non-prosecution of Morgan as a principal, he, he aided and abetted, yes, but not as a principal, just disappeared from view in a central case in criminal law scholarship. So that's sort of the the attention and the inattention. That idea that the exclusion, that it doesn't count as rape if it's the husband, um, you trace in the book is something that seems to just not be discussed really at all. Um, oddly, it doesn't seem to be discussed when it is how law worked and it doesn't seem didn't seem to have been discussed when it was taken out of the law. Why do you think this particular bit of law is just not on the conversation? It's a very good question, and it was the thing that puzzled me for a long time. And really it got down to, I think, the male monopoly. So it was really powerful legal men talking to powerful legal men. And I think there were very deep vested interests in the rape immunity. In fact, the leading scholar, criminal law scholar in England, stoutly defended the husband's immunity from rape prosecution until 1991. And in other ways, he was a very liberal scholar. This was Glanville Williams. Um, so I, I think this monopoly had a huge influence on how it was understood. It really wasn't seen to be as that bad. That was said, it can't, can't possibly be that bad when it's your wife. These days, that would be regarded probably as unusual torture. So it just simply wasn't seen. And then the law changed and the subject was dropped. There was no deep apology. In fact, I often thought, well, when apartheid stopped in South Africa, 
there was a, a deep drawing in of breath that there had been shocking laws. Nothing like that happened. It, um, it was just very quietly and euphemistically done and then dropped. Huh. I find this quite puzzling, um, which I'm glad I'm not the only one. One of the things that made me kind of think about this idea that it's all focused around um, the vested interests, as you said, is you talk about in the book that obviously law is written with kind of some assumptions of like who the subjects of the law are, what people might do, etc. We talked about this. You mentioned it earlier, kind of that it's written for men, not necessarily for women. Um, and I found it really helpful how you sort of you, you gave us these characters, these personifications of different sort of types, really, of male characters that appeared in the law, that laws were written for. Um, and a lot of them seem to have come kind of back in the Victorian period uh, or sort of around then. But of course, as you've already demonstrated, right, legal scholars um, have quite a long staying power. So would you mind taking us through some of these key male character personifications that appear in law and, and might still be kicking around a bit? Yes, um, these are good, challenging questions. Um, <laughs> if I go back to the law of coverture, which was that the, exist the legal existence of the husband covered the existence of the wife, that idea really held good for a long, long time. So although the classic idea of someone who comes before the criminal law is that they are an individual, that they are not allowed to touch other people, and they've got firm border controls themselves, and they're choosing actors. This person-respecting individual was only partly represented in the criminal law. Yet the other characters I've found through um, going through the law, one I called the little king or monarch, and that was the male figure of family authority, the, the, really the man of coverture. Uh, Blackstone was the, the great articulator of that, and he said that women, the wife upon marriage is virtually legally extinguished. The other character I identified was perhaps a bit provocatively called the sexual master, and this was the person, the man, who was expected to exert control in the bedroom. And there's pretty clear case law on that, encouraging men to take control of the bedroom. Again, this is really at odds with the classic idea of an individual person who doesn't touch others and keeps himself to himself. Men as husbands were not conceived in that way. Which... Yeah, that contradiction, I think, is really interesting um, because you talk about sort of after the creation of these personas or in more of the Victorian period, at the beginning of the 20th century, when we might see a lot of things changing in politics, economics, law, obviously related as well. Um, you argue that men in criminal law at this point were, quote, less independent and self-contained than they thought. Um, and obviously the classical idea is that they are quite self-contained and they are quite independent. Why might they be less so than they would have thought? That really does, that point flows out of um, coverture and the idea, in fact, the rape immunity itself, the husband's rape immunity. The classic idea of the individual of criminal law is that they are bounded and boarded and 
keep themselves to themselves and don't touch without consent. They've got clear border control, and that's the rhetoric. Uh, and it's still espoused by most thinkers. But um, most men were expected to marry, and as soon as they did, they ceased to be bounded individuals, clearly bordered, who kept themselves to themselves. In fact, the husband was getting clear, intimate access to a wife, and marriage changed the borders of the husband. In fact, he could say he was incited by law not to exercise firm border control. He sort of amoeba, amoeba-like um, joined up with the wife, and she became part of him. I think the legal immunity of husbands from rape prosecution is perhaps the main law which extended the husband's borders. And I think this is a, an ingrained part of legal thinking. Uh, there were other ways as, as well. Uh, by going to the law of murder, the provocation defence to murder, which reduces it to manslaughter, or it means used to, a classic illustration of when it might work as a partial defence was the man who lost control of his wife because she was unfaithful. Now, that was a, a, a classic way of understanding men who had been jilted by a wife, the wife who said, no, I want somebody else. Again, I think you can see this sort of colonizing and controlling ten tendency right in the heart of the law of murder. Very much right in the heart of it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Um... I want to kind of relate it to this and picking up on something you said earlier um, about euphemisms. And I think especially when we talk about the law and what is or is not there, the language really does matter quite a lot in terms of where the emphasis and focus is. So how did euphemisms in criminal law change over time? And how does this sort of impact this idea of the inattention and attention of the man problem? It's a good and a hard question too. I I, going back to the 19th century, there was certainly a clear view on the part of legal authorities that there was male right, particularly within a, a marriage. And then when this changed, when, the, when this view was rejected, and it wasn't rejected until about the 1990s, so it's pretty recently, the euphemism that I think was employed when this law was changed and rejected, was to say that women's lives had modernized. There was very little said about this being evil law, that it had anything to do with human rights abuses. It was 
sort of a benign and natural transition in the relations of men and women. In fact, it was really women who had now come into their own and their you could celebrate their new independence. So this is really a lot of waffle. This was the, the euphemism which in, enabled quite dramatically will change a little reigning in of male power to be treated as uh, women's lives becoming more more modern. And I, I found this infuriating and um, terrible hypocrisy, actually. And with this idea of kind of the, it, 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 you know, in a lot of ways being brushed under the rug, right? This massive change kind of going, oh, yeah, now we've just updated, nothing to see here. Um, and, and that's very much true in the idea of there was no public apology. There was not kind of a lot of public debate. Um, there also seems to be quite little legal attention, legal discussion, um, even amongst kind of, you know, the intensive nerds that like to talk about all manner of changes. Any one thing tweaked and suddenly there's 17 books. Um, you know, obviously I probably am part of that. So, you know, this is this is self-mockery. That's fine. Um, why do you think there was so little legal attention in addition to the lack of public attention? I, I still find it a peculiar thing. If I go back to the 1990s, there was sort of a domino effect. There were challenges to the immunity and then judges in Scotland and England and Australia over the course of a couple of years said, oh no, that's that's a law of older barbaric times. And the judgments were very brief, very unanalytical. They lacked rigor. They didn't make good historical sense. And then nobody seemed to pick it up. Um, the judges really were diminishing the scale of the change. They were failing to take stock of the fact that the husband's rape of his wife had been lawful up to the year before. And they tended to fob off the past and dissociate themselves from it. Their attention was on women and their change. Now, why the scholars themselves didn't pick this up is still, for me, a strange thing, particularly given that DPP and Morgan was of such interest to them. I spoke to a very distinguished criminal law scholar, and I referred to that the marital rape case of DPP and Morgan, and that person said, what do you mean a marital rape case? Because the attention was on subjective criminal responsibility. Did they know they had her consent or not? The fact that Morgan was not charged as the husband and rapist just sort of fell out of the picture, which makes me think that there can be blindnesses all over the place. And once I started seeing this, it seemed extremely obvious, but um, one might say that criminal lawyers are very busy, but it is odd. And I think part of the fact that it seemed a, a terrible slight on criminal law scholars and criminal law generally. Uh, it does feel quite strange, um, given sort of how many things do get quite a lot of attention. Um, and this idea of kind of things get ignored or kind of missed uh, translates in a lot of ways when we think about what you've been telling us and then we look back at the modern individual in criminal law today. Um, because without kind of thinking through these things, we might look at sort of what criminal law says the individual is now and go, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And of course, now we're like, hang on a second. There's all these other things that maybe don't get talked about or in fact don't get talked about. So 
With all this in mind, who is the modern individual of criminal law now? Well, they're treated as gender neutral now, and sometimes the female pronoun is used. And that's very odd because women are not the main offenders, and it's not really much the compliment to women to call, to use the female pronoun to describe the criminal population. Who is this modern individual? I think a lot of the past is still with us. Because there hasn't been an open address of the male monopoly of criminal law, I don't think there has been close attention to this type of people who are conjured up by criminal law. And I, I should say that this term male monopoly, I owe a, a big debt to Albie Sachs, who was uh, a great um, fighter against apartheid in South Africa and finally sat on the Constitutional Court. And when he was a senior lecturer, I think he was in Nottingham, he co-wrote a book called The Male Monopoly of Law, on Sexism and the Law. And he decried this male monopoly and said it was skewing all the thinking. So I would like to um, acknowledge Albert Sachs, who not incidentally lost, lost an, an eye and an arm as a consequence of his fights for racial equality in South Africa. Um, so back to your question, who is this modern individual? Well, I think women have been deemed to have joined the category of the legal individual. They're treated as, we are treated as individuals, but because there hasn't been this close scrutiny of the history of criminal law, I think in many ways women still simply don't fit as legal individuals. And the most obvious way that they don't fit uh, is at pregnancy and reproduction. These characteristics of human beings are not regarded as normal in the centre of criminal law. And one illustration of that is that abortion laws are put to the side as special and different law, as if human beings don't reproduce. But I think there's an awful lot of work to be done to work out what sort of human beings are being regulated by criminal law. So yes, we're all supposed to be individuals now, but that individual is really a man in the past. Because I don't think there has been this review work done, women remain in some ways still anomalous. So I do want to ask, obviously, the, the kind of obvious next question, but is definitely not an easy one. Um, what should we do with this legacy that we've inherited? How can we move forward? I think it's such a big ask that, um, well, what I think should happen is I think there need to be very sustained analyses of criminal law and how it how power and self-interest have been an important part of how it has been made and understood. So we need a concerted effort to understand the effects of male power on the understandings of the norms of criminal law, how public spaces are regulated, but I must say I am not optimistic about this. I did, uh, talking about this, the book, and as a scholar, what you hope to have a book do, you, you want it to be broadly read and you want it to change thinking. Now, my book did receive quite a number of, of good and thoughtful reviews, but I think it's just going to be business as usual. 
in criminal law. And it's a very frustrating thing, which is one of the reasons that I wanted to do this podcast to sort of get the message out. I think we still do not have a criminal legal story of men as men. The dominance of men is not understood for its effects on criminal law. And I think there should be intellectual curiosity about this. You don't just deem that suddenly we're all individuals now with this past in which it was really the man who was the individual. Well, if women are now individuals, what do you do about the law? How do you think about it differently? Let's get the researchers onto it. So I think it's a clarion call for people to do. Um, I mean, there's some wonderful criminal law scholars, but I think attention needs to be turned to this. Fair enough. Um, I think that's something that a lot of listeners might find very intriguing. Um, before I let you go, this book uh, came out in 2020. It is very much available for people to read. Is there anything you've been working on since, anything upcoming, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this issue that you'd like our audience to be aware of? Uh, yes, thank you very much for asking that question. I'm sort of halfway into another book, which um, again is about biases within now central central law, law generally. Law has not been civilised to women. In fact, it's been openly hostile. It has stripped women of their most basic rights. This is sort of common knowledge to any lawyer who knows their history. Women were stripped of their rights to property, to education, to electoral rights, to any positions of public power. Now, men have never experienced law as a hostile institution, as a rights-stripping institution, simply because they were men. Men have experienced law as a rights-giving and rights-protecting institution. And this um, is how mainstream jurisprudence is depicted for everyone, but it's only true for men. What I've become interested in is the fact of this concentration of male legal power is a commonplace. It should have had a, a big effect on law and its making, but it's regarded as banal, as uninteresting, and as ordinary. Now, this is despite the fact that some of the most um, distinguished figures in criminal law made it went to considerable effort to keep women down. Uh, one key figure, for example, is A. B. Dicey. Who, was, who is said to have been responsible for the English Constitution. He's known for his work on the rule of law and equality before the law, and there's been a recent biography of Dicey in which he is being lauded yet again. He has a supreme reputation in law still as an explainer of how it works constitutionally. Now, what Dicey did was he wrote a whole short book on why women should have no public power why we should not have the franchise, how England would be destabilised by women who lacked the nous to exercise positions of public authority. Dicey is an illustration of a man who really hangs feet on women's necks for some purposes, and yet such distinguished figures have not been looked at for their effects on legal thinking, and their own scholarship hasn't been analysed in terms of what it meant. If they thought this way about public power, 
why were their reputations retained and shouldn't all their work be looked at? So I, my book is really on how the malware of, of law has been normalised to the point that some of the major people who fought to keep it that way still retain their reputations and it doesn't get looked at. Again, it's this very peculiar epistemological quandary of how something so big, male power, which has been strongly recommended by some of the leading figures in criminal law, still just looks normal. So that's that's the book I'm looking at. I, I'm writing at the moment, provisionally titled The Maleness of Law. In some ways, a sequel, it sounds like, to the book we've been discussing, um, which is quite fascinating. I think we'll very much look forward to that. Um, and while you're working on it, of course, listeners can read the book we have been mainly discussing titled Criminal Law and the Man Problem, published by Bloomsbury in 2020. Nari, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Thank you so much, Miranda. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>